let's look into our Bibles. I don't have much time left, but I do want to begin talking about material in Hebrews chapter 11. So if you want to turn there, I'm going to give some introductory remarks just sort of to catch up to where we were. I was at summer camp two Sundays ago, driving to summer camp, and praise the Lord, that went well, and everyone survived. But three weeks ago, or three Sundays ago, when I taught, I taught on Hebrews 11, chapter 11, and I would guide as far as, I believe, verse 3. But Hebrews chapter 11 is really a massive exhortation. The entirety of the chapter is about faith. That's the centerpiece of everything that's being talked about. And it's all placed in Scripture so that God's children, even in the midst of hardship, which many at that time were facing, so that God's children would stay the course, so that they wouldn't be distracted. And all of chapter 11 is considered and supposed to be examples of faith in the life of saints historically, so that believers would be encouraged by it. And the emphasis is this, if they could do it, you can too. If they had faith and you have faith, you have the same capabilities that they had. Hebrews 12.1 really shows the whole purpose of why Hebrews chapter 11 is here. And it says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. All these people were examples. It goes on to say, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race set, that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And on it goes. The point of all of this is that we if we are children of God, are supposed to look at what these saints of old were able to do because of faith and recognize we possess the same thing. And if we possess the same thing, then we have the ability, no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter what we face in the form of temptation to sin or in the form of external trials, we can soldier on and we can run the race with endurance, with our minds fixed on Jesus because of faith. And so the writer began the whole chapter 11, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. This is really definitional. He wants everyone to understand what he is talking about. He wants them to understand that he's talking about faith in God, a very specific faith that believes what God says and believes what God promises. This is where saving faith resides. And the writer talks about assurance. It's the assurance of things hoped for, and it's beyond just this subjective, warm and fuzzy feeling, because subjective feelings come and go. He's talking about an objective reality that isn't founded on our circumstances or our emotions or our feelings. It's founded on the reality of who God is. And he's talking about the things hoped for, the assurance of things hoped for. It's the confidence we have, the understanding we have that the things God's promised for us in the future will come to pass. And when he says the conviction of things not seen, he's really, I think a better understanding of that word conviction is evidence. This is the proof. Faith gives us the hope, the confidence, but it gives us the proof for things we can't see. Faith provides the proof, the evidences for truths that we cannot touch with our physical senses. And things not seen includes all manner of experiences, spiritual, otherwise, that are beyond our specific ability to see it and touch it. 
supposed to bridge the gap so that we don't develop an attitude like Thomas who said, well, I'll believe it if I can touch it. No, faith allows you to believe things that you could never touch, that you could never grasp. You believe it because of who God is. And it's only by faith that saints ever get God's approval. And this is important, and the only reason I'm going back to reiterate this is because everything that we're going to begin to study today in verse 4 going forward with these specific examples of historical men and women who exercise faith, the backdrop is this recognition. They have the approval of God. If you think about it, who do you want to emulate in life? You don't want to emulate people who have society's approval or people who have the government's approval. You want to emulate people who have God's approval. And that's the ultimate point here. The men of old, just referring to Old Testament saints, men and women, is really all that the rest of the chapter is going to be talking about, including what we're going to cover this morning. The way to have God's pleasure, his approval, is by faith, and there is no other way to please God. We'll learn that in a few verses. But now the last time we studied this, again, now we're tying together from three weeks ago, we realized, and I introduced, that it's not really a chapter that can be outlined because this is just a list of examples of faith. Example after example after example. And the first example introduces a phrase. It's one word in Greek. In English, it's translated by faith. And I went through a litany of verses at least 19 times in chapter 11. You're going to see by faith, by faith, by faith. Most of those times, it's the very first word of the sentence in Greek. And in Greek, in the context of this, without getting into too much of it, that is emphatic. In other words, that's putting it on display so that you understand the most important thing is by faith. And this is the backdrop for everything that we study. This faith that it gives us the assurance of the things that God has promised, gives us the evidence of things we can't see, this faith that God gives us is the source, it's the ability to do everything that we're going to see these individual saints did. But as I mentioned last time when I taught, before he even gets into these individual examples, because much of what we're going to be covering is really starting at the beginning of the book of Genesis and going through. In fact, the first portion of by faith had to do with the act of creation. Now, he presented it a little bit differently because he was saying, we understand. In other words, he was identifying with his hearers, letting them know, look, I know you have this faith of which I'm speaking. Certainly there were some people in his target audience that didn't have faith. That's why he had his warnings against apostasy and other things. But he knew he was primarily dealing with genuine believers, and he's telling them by faith, we understand. He's identifying and saying, we have this faith. This isn't an academic exercise. It's not a theoretical construct. This is a present reality that is in your life and mind. And one of the means by which we exercise that faith is our understanding of how everything that exists came to be. And his whole point, and again, it might seem I'm being redundant, but this has very significant impact because this is Genesis 1 and 2. It has very significant impact on what we're going to discuss in Hebrews 11:4 when dealing with the person of Abel. But he said, by faith, we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God. And that's really just talking about all of creation created in an orderly and appropriate manner by the living God, by the act of speaking his word. I read to you at that time a litany of verses that go through the account of creation in Genesis 1 
and God said, and it was so, and God said, and it was so, and God said, and it was so. And we know from Scripture that Jesus was a part of every created act. And the whole point of all of this is we understand by faith that God really did create everything that exists. And that's important for us because we live in a world that rejects all of that, particularly this second part of that verse, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In other words, God didn't take raw materials that already existed and and, and remold them, reshape them, and suddenly the world exists. God spoke into existence things that didn't exist, boom, they exist. Animals, plants, the sun, the moon, stars, humans, everything that we can see that exists in the material universe, God spoke into existence. Now, why is that so important? Because a great majority of the church has jettisoned the idea that God created, and they've bought into what is propagated by the world, that evolution is the explanation. I hope just by a cursory reading, you understand evolution and these verses of Hebrews don't go together. They can't. Because evolution says everything that exists came out of something that existed before, just in a slightly modified change over billions of years. Whereas the scriptures say what we see, what came into existence, came into existence by the word of God, not by some evolutionary process. Our faith is based on God and his word. It's by faith that we can believe that God created, even though the rest of the world laughs and snickers and says that can't be. Even when a lot of the laughing and snickering comes from people who claim to believe what we believe. But all this is relevant because now we're going to step into the first of the individuals that the writer of Hebrews holds up as an exemplar of faith. So our first example of faith was creation. The second example of faith is Abel. And we read this in verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. Now again, as I have repeatedly mentioned, Hebrews chapter 11 draws very heavily on the book of Genesis. And part of the reason I wanted to go back and reiterate what was said about creation is because of the implications for the historical man named Abel. Here's the issue. A lot of people, including Christians, have decided that evolution must be true, therefore Adam and Eve are really just a metaphorical construct. They're not real people. They're just used to teach some type of bigger spiritual truth. Here's the problem you run into, and we'll see it in just a minute. Go flip over to Genesis. Flip over to Genesis, if you would. We're going to read at um, Genesis... Go to the end of Genesis chapter 3. I'll start at verse 22 of Genesis chapter 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. The fear being he would live forever in a sinful state. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
So Adam and Eve were in the garden, perfect fellowship, paradise. Then they sinned and they were kicked out of the garden. Now, here's the issue. If Adam and Eve aren't historical people, well, then suddenly we don't have a real account. Follow along with me as I read chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Because the scriptures say this. Now, the man, the same man who was kicked out of the garden, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Verse 2. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Here's the point. According to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were real people. They weren't just stories designed to create a bigger truth. They were real people, and they had real children, one of whom's name was Abel. What you find, the more you study and you see the unity of Scripture, is that if you start kicking out the legs on which the faith is founded, which involves the fall of man in in Genesis chapter 3, you really do damage to the rest of Scripture. Because in Hebrews 11.4, it's treating Abel not as some story designed to teach a larger truth. They're treating him as a human being who should be an example to us as human beings with faith that we can walk on this earth. And so if you jettison Adam and Eve and say they weren't real, you really run these verses aground. Not to mention of which, and I'll address this the next time we teach, Jesus treated this as history. Jesus himself treats Abel as a real person. But that's another story at another time. We'll get to that the next time I teach. But what do we know from Genesis at this point, from Genesis chapters 1 and 2? Adam and Eve, their first two children, were named Cain and Abel, both sons. And we know that Cain, the oldest, was a farmer. And we know that Abel, the younger, was a keeper of livestock of some sort. Now, as you stay in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, this is the historical underpinning for what we're going to be studying in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. It says, about, it says this, beginning at verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Verse 4. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. Verse 5. But for Cain and for his offering, he, the Lord, had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Again, this is what we're talking about in Hebrews 11.4. And it raises a few questions when you look at the account in Genesis, so I'm just going to try and address them in a sort of a straightforward way. Let me summarize what I think Genesis teaches us, although it's not explicitly laid out such that we can't put together a detailed account. And remember this, when... Abel and Cain were alive and walking on the earth. There was no such thing as Scripture recorded. We believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses is many centuries away. Moses is a long ways away before there's any written account. Yet somehow, God had communicated to man that he expected offerings. God had communicated somehow to man that he expected offerings. 
Now, we can't go too far. We don't know how this occurred. It could be that God had given direction to Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve. Recall at one point God had direct interaction with them in the garden. They had undisturbed fellowship. It could be that this is knowledge passed on by uh, Cain and Abel's parents saying, here is what God expects of you. Or, in some way not recorded in Scripture, and we couldn't speculate about it, could be that God gave Cain and Abel some type of more direct revelation to allow them to know God's expectations. At the end of the day, we can't say for certain. We don't know Scripture is silent. We can't fill in what Scripture doesn't say. But I think it's very clear from the implications. We do know God expected an offering from Cain and Abel. And apparently, God had given Cain and Abel enough information so that they would understand how to do that offering in the proper manner. We don't know what the requirements were. We don't know what the specifics that Cain and Abel had. We don't know the particular parameters that governed their worship of God. But we do know God expected an offering. And Cain and Abel were aware that God expected an offering. What the scriptures tell us is that Cain brought produce from the field consistent with his occupation and Abel brought of animals which was consistent with his occupation. And we know that God had an opinion about those two offerings. Second half of verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. Now, we don't know anything more than what Genesis just told us. I think Hebrews 11.4, and I won't get into all that today. I'll get into it next time we teach on this. I think it gives some indication that it had to do with the heart attitude. But we don't know for certain why it is that God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's offering. We know it probably has something to do with the hard attitude, but we don't know beyond that. I've read a lot of accounts of this. I've read from some Bible teachers that I greatly respect, that I think they go beyond what Scripture says. Some people develop this elaborate thinking that, well, the whole issue was they should have known that God only wanted a blood sacrifice, and so therefore Abel was doing the right thing, Cain wasn't. I don't think you can read that from Scripture. I'll just give you a verse reference. For example, in Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. And this is just representative. It's not exhaustive. God had times where he did prescribe bring produce to the fields. There were times in the Old Testament where God said, this is the proper offering for a certain time. And of course, there were times where God said, you bring a sacrifice of animals. Point is, I, I don't think we can take from the scriptures and say, well, here's the problem. Abel offered an animal sacrifice, which was a blood sacrifice, which was looking ahead to Christ. Cain didn't do that, so that's the reason. We just don't know the reason. All we know is that Cain brought from what he produced, and he presented it to God, and Abel brought from what he produced and presented it to God, and Abel's was viewed favorably by God. Cain's was rejected. And this made Cain incredibly angry. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. And God warned Cain about this. Then the Lord said to Cain, verse 6 of Genesis 4, Why are you, why are you angry and why is your countenance fallen? 
If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Again, I may come back to this later. It's clear God was telling Cain, it's possible for you to do what I require as well. But be careful, because sin is there. God was very gracious. He warned Cain about his anger. You can almost hear God saying, what are you upset about? You were treated the way you should be treated. You were treated fairly. I'm just and righteous, and be careful. Don't allow this to go on, because that anger, which is sin, will destroy you. God gave a direct warning to Cain, direct conversation with Cain. That's why I said it's possible that God, in some way, told Cain and Abel directly what the manner of worship was, but we can't go beyond that's just possible. Verse 8 tells us this in Genesis 4. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Yeah, I would say sin crouched waiting for Cain and it jumped on him. Cain committed the first human murder. Abel was the first victim. And all of this is the historical backdrop for what we find in Hebrews 11, verse 4. Again, I think as we study this, we're going to see a lot of the issue had to do with the heart. And obviously Cain's heart was not right, but a lot of fascinating information is shared about Abel's heart. Because according to Hebrews 11, it was by faith that he offered the better sacrifice. It was because of his faith in God. That was what enabled him to give with the right heart motive, in the right manner, in a way that was pleasing to God, such that the testimony of God about Abel is that he was righteous. As much as I hate to do it, I'm going to have to stop there because the next part of thought that I'm going to develop will take me about 20 minutes, and obviously we don't have that much time this morning. But can I encourage you to do this as you are preparing and as we get ready to jump back into this in in a few weeks i guess about a month's time on july 21 let me encourage you to read through these accounts in genesis next after abel and i hope to start speeding up a little bit that's famous last words from me in terms of going through the scriptures but we're going to look at a historical character of enoch and then we're going to look at the life of noah i would encourage you if you don't already have a a set daily Bible study plan, you can benefit your study of the book of Hebrews as we do this here by reading what it says in Hebrews by faith and then finding the parallel account in Genesis and later you'll find it in, I believe, um, Joshua and some other Old Testament books. But it would be a great blessing of you to be reading these side by side so that you have a, a, a more intimate awareness of where the writer's going. Again, the writer of Hebrews wrote all these things assuming that his audience had knowledge of the biblical account. He was assuming they had knowledge of all of these things. I would encourage you to make sure you have that knowledge, to go back and read it and reread it. Because it will help you get even more out of this study as we move forward. So, for today we're going to be done i will look forward to being back together with you on july 21st and i pray that i will see you all here on july 14th in the first first hour of our class so that we can help make this a special luncheon for the charbaz and for our 
church family. Let me close it with, close us with a word of prayer. There's a few minutes, table leaders, if you want to finish prayer requests or, or to pray briefly, and then we will be dismissed and go to the main service. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the examples of faith that you've placed in front of us. Lord, you are drawing our minds through the book of Hebrews to these historical figures who lived thousands of years ago. And yet, Lord, we also know that we have people around us and in our lives who have, who have touched us that are examples of faith as well. And I pray, Lord, that we would dwell on these examples. Lord, the Apostle Paul didn't hesitate to say, follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, all the godly examples you've placed in our lives, the people who have had faith that we've seen and we've witnessed and been blessed by, Lord, it should motivate us to be people of faith. And I pray, Lord, that we would not only just be people of faith with the knowledge of the truth, but that we would live it out. That our life of faith would impact others, that we would be great witnesses and testimonies for you because of our faith. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.